here today with Dr. Graham Woodworth. Graham, thank you very much for your time today. Thanks for coming in. It's great to be here with you. Thank you. Welcome to the studio. Um, I've, I've talked a little with your son, Luke, who I taught last year, and he told me that you're a big tennis fan. So I wanted to bring, you know, book recommendation that I'm reading, David Foster Wallace, String Theory. Um, he's a brilliant writer, and I've just been enjoying his kind of descriptions of, of tennis. Yes. Yes, I'm definitely a big tennis fan. My kids actually make fun of me because if I get home before them or if I'm home late and they see me, you know, sort of relaxing after work, decompressing maybe a little bit more after work, my favorite thing to do is to throw on a, a tennis match. And if there's not one on, I have a whole slew of great matches recorded. Oh, yeah. And I'll go back and watch them. Wow. Yeah, so I just love the both the physical nature of it and the psychological nature of the sport. And I just feel like watching people do battle on the tennis court, something about it for me is just, uh, it just resonates with me in, in terms of the daily struggle, you know, that people go through both physically, mentally. And uh, I think tennis is a great metaphor for a lot of things that a lot of personal things that you have to go through. Cause in the end you're, you're alone out there on the tennis court. Mm -hmm. In most cases, you don't have a coach. You're not allowed to coach. Mm -hmm. So it's really you kind of in the psychological battle both with yourself and with your opponent trying to trying to figure out how to get it done. Yeah, I mean, I think of all sports, in my opinion, it's the it's the most difficult in terms of psychological pressure. You're in front of, you know, millions of people, you're on TV and it's just you and an opponent that you never really, you know, interact with. They're, mm -hmm. you know, 100 yards away from you the whole time. Exactly. Yeah. And sometimes it gets, a, you know, there, there's all these games, psychological games that the players can, can kind of play with each other to try to f get in their head and try to intimidate them. You know, you see the Rafael Nadal style, the Federer style, and I think each of them had their own way of just sort of either seeming so personally confident that they were not going to be challenged in that, in that match or somehow getting under the skin of the other player either by taking time in certain moments mm -hmm. or rushing them in other moments and sort of controlling the pace of play as well. I think all of that is really a fascinating aspect of the game that you don't see in other sports when it's not so one-on-one -on -one and also so time-constrained on, on both sides. Yeah, it's really a chess match. Mm -hmm. You think about uh, guys like Nick Kyrgios, who I actually enjoy watching because he's entertaining, even though he's such a knucklehead. Mm -hmm. But he has all of those psychological tricks where he's serving you know, underhand and trying to catch the guy off guard and... It's fascinating, the different styles. Yeah, I agree. He's sort of next level psychological warfare, <laughs> you know, when you think about how he plays the game and, and, and also just has, you know, he'll even how he interacts with the crowd. Mm -hmm. You know, he's taking the, the whole environment in and using that to his advantage or trying to use it to his advantage doesn't always work out. But. <laughs> yeah, he can't seem to get over the, you know, the next, because he is so talented and his serve oh is gosh. so, he's got the best serve, I think, in the game, but mm -hmm. he just can't figure out a way to win a, a Masters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and one of the things about tennis for me, whether it's at the professional level or, you know, at a club level or learning as a, as a, as a young person, I think you learn early on that if you don't try to win and you're not afraid to lose, you're, you're never going to win if you, if you play afraid. Mm -hmm. You know, because you have to go for your shots. You know, a lot of people play sort of just dinking the ball back and forth. Mm -hmm. And you can get to a certain level doing that, just sort of skyballing it or looping it back and forth. But you, once you play a good player, you're never going to win playing like that. So you have to be willing to take risk. 
mm-hmm. to, to get good and to win. So I think that's an important piece of it as well. And that's a, it's a personal thing. You know, you, a lot of people can do that when you're part of a team. Right. You know, it feels supported by a whole group of people taking risk together mm-hmm. to try to win or execute a play, mm-hmm. you know, that sort of thing. It's very different when it's all on you. Right. It's that edge to, you know, come back from behind. That's why a lead is so important in tennis because if you're on the other end of that and you're trying to, mm-hmm. you know, catch up to that person, there's so little room for mistakes. And it's hard to go for your shots when you know if you mess up, you know, you're going to continue to to fall behind. True. Yeah, but I also think the opposite's true in that if you get so far behind that you've got nothing to lose anymore, you can sometimes see those players come back in this sort of spectacular rebound way. Right. So it goes both ways. Right. I was watching uh, this past weekend was the Madrid Open Championship with Alcaraz playing forget this guy's name he's from italy and uh he wasn't even considered for the tournament he just kind of snuck in and he made it all the way to the championship because he was just letting it go you know he had nothing to lose and he's playing alcaraz the best player in the world and so what you know he everyone thinks he's gonna lose yep exactly so might as well go for it yeah nothing to lose i love it (laughs) it's a great mentality um but anyway you know david foster wallace I've, i've been reading this and he describes tennis. Um, I like this quote. I submit that tennis is the most beautiful sport there is and also the most demanding. And I think I agree with that. Yeah. So in this book, is there some sort of thesis that he's going after or what are they, what is he looking at? So there are different, um, I guess, essays that he's writing. I think they're all nonfiction. So there's one about Federer and why Federer is such an amazing player. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's one uh, called Derivative Sport in Tornado Alley. So Foster Wallace was from Illinois, kind of in the middle of nowhere, mm-hmm. where there's a lot of wind as he was growing up. He's a brilliant writer, but he also grew up and he was a pretty decent tennis player. Um, so he talks about how he never really let the wins bother him as a player. And he was Mm -hmm. such a mathematical mind. I mean, the guy is just beyond brilliant. Hmm. Um, So he's talking about playing a sport like tennis in such a windy area growing up. Um, And I I love the play on words in the title, obviously going after string theory. You know, my mind goes right to the mathematical Mm -hmm. piece of that. But that's, that's great. I'd love to check it out. Yeah, yeah, I'd highly recommend that. I know I asked you to maybe bring in a book recommendation, mm-hmm. but this is one, and I have another one too that that I thought of that you might enjoy. Mm-hmm. I know Luke was interested in the book range. You know, I, I kind of brought that up to him as an interesting, you know, sort of take on moving from high school into college and thinking about sort of the AI world that our kids are going to be trying to grow up in and develop professionally in. And I think this is going to be one of the biggest disruptions in, in many ways in professional and educational, uh, you know, phases of life. And when I thought about that book and read it, you know, you know maybe one or two years ago, it also begins with a tennis uh, metaphor mm-hmm. with between Tiger Woods and Roger Federer. And, you know, makes the case, Epstein makes the case in that metaphor that uh, Federer has range and Woods and golf maybe doesn't develop the same level of range and, and, uh, and, and really gets into the, the importance of that differentiator in, in human uh, skill, you know, the, to be able to take many different, you know, uh, experiences, skill sets, and then bring them together in a way that, that allows you to be creative, truly creative in the moment. And it's not just pattern recognition or, or repetition of a given skill. It's the ability to bring 
many different experiences, skill sets together, and then leverage that to execute a task, mm-hmm. whether that's a forehand in tennis against you know a, a high level opponent in Federer's case, or you know someone doing a, you know a professional task in in the world that's going to be run in many ways by ChatGPT or mm-hmm. some other AI bot that's going to do the easy things for people. You know, we think about basic writing. You know, certainly you know calculations and various things. These are all going to be done by, for us. Even computer science stuff, which mm-hmm. is a bit of a, you know, it's it's interesting that you can type in even on ChatGPT kind of a basic level of what AI will be, and it will program something for you very easily on the spot. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, what's going to differentiate our students and you know our kids when they get out there and you know try to develop a career mm-hmm. you know in that world that's a really interesting question that's going to be answered over the you know kind of the coming years but i think the concept of range to me plays into that answer yeah and so that i think that book is timely yeah i i really enjoyed what i've read of that book i want to finish it but mm-hmm. um i love the beginning about tennis and it really reminds me of this video of steve jobs commencement speech at stanford actually um forget what year, maybe 2005, I showed it to my leadership and character students in the fall. And he tells a story about how, you know, he went to college and he was interested in computer science and he was, you know, in that world. But he had to take a prereq class in school at Reed College, I believe he went to mm-hmm. Reed, um, on calligraphy in different scripts. And he was like, why am I taking this class? It's like, it has nothing to do with what I actually want to do. And what do you know, you know, five, 10 years later, he's putting all these fancy fonts into the Mac, which is really making the Mac appealing to people and different from a Dell or another PC computer. So exactly, exactly. That's a great, I mean, that, that, that would fit perfectly into the book, you know, in terms of, you know, having different experiences, not just focusing on one thing and just being really good at that. I mean, there's a balance there because I do think in life at some point you do have to focus to make an impact. Mm-hmm. But if you do that too early and you don't develop range in a sense, you know, whether it's exposure to different sports and different, you know, academic uh, areas or, you know, different locations in the world, you know, getting exposed to different cultures. I think all of these things develop this concept of range in an individual. And I believe that's going to make humans to continue to have a huge uh, place in, in, in you know the the progress that we're going to achieve together, and and not have it be driven by some computer module or some AI system or something like that. So how about in the world of medicine? Does the you know the whole AI um, I guess precipice that we're on? How do you feel about that? How do you think about artificial intelligence in your world? Yeah, I would say it's already been in our world for a while in various ways. You know, a lot of the systems that we use use a form of AI to to, to solve problems, you know, and, and to uh, cultivate data. That, that's a big part of medicine. And, you know, me- medicine is so multidimensional and patient care, you know, is, is more and more, you know, team-based. So I think that, you know, the information that we get and how it's filtered to us in medicine has already been coming through, you know, AI-like uh, entities, I think that the um, the future of certain specialties in medicine is going to be radically changed by the advancement of AI. Things that in medicine that are pattern recognition, uh, things like radiology, pathology, where you know that those those types of of medical specialties I think are going to be 
heavily influenced by AI, which really can do pattern recognition at a rapid rate with high fidelity. Mm-hmm. So ele- elements of medicine that require, you know, synthesizing data and elevating, you know, one of the classic concepts of medicine is the differential diagnosis, which is when you see uh, a chief complaint or a problem with a patient, you create a list of possibilities and then you leverage data to elevate one or two of those possibilities to the top and then everything else falls to the bottom. And so you have what's called your lead in the differential diagnosis. And then it's just becomes a, almost a scientific process of challenging that with data and with what you glean from the patient in their description of the problem to kind of get down to what you think is the, the top possibility. And then, then you design treatments around that top possibility and hope that they work. In some cases, you have evidence that if you're right, that they will work. But that process is is very creative. You know, it's it, it's scientific and creative at the same time. That's what what I love about the field of medicine is it's both an art and a science. Mm-hmm. And so some of it will be taken over by the science, the AI based science that can, that can be, you know, driven through better and better data management and and pattern recognition. But there'll always be that that creative component, that art form component of it. I think that will be required to be truly excellent at it and in, indeed also safe, you know, because that, you know, some things, if you race into a treatment without really thinking it through and understanding it, you know, you can head in the wrong direction. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm interested in just AI as a partnership between humans and the computer, because mm-hmm. I think that could create, you know, such an efficient world. You know, I, I think we're at least in the English department here at Gilman, we're always talking about how is this, you know, should students use this? And I've got cases of students writing papers with it. And myself, like I, I look to ChatGPT to give me some ideas for things. And I think mm-hmm. that's effective and it's useful and very efficient. I mean, I'm not spending hours trying to come up with something. I'm just generating ideas and then using that to create something. So the, the balance, I think, between creativity and efficiency, what you're talking about is, it's powerful. I agree, and I think for that reason, I think of it not as artificial intelligence, but more as augmented intelligence. Mm -hmm. So if we think about it that way, just the words we use can be very powerful in that way. And I think if it's augmenting how we behave and perform in the world, that's much better way of thinking about it than artificial or replacement. It almost gives you a sense of you're replacing something Mm -hmm. with artificial. I don't see it that way either. I agree. I think it's much more of an augmented intelligence. AI is that is augmented. And I think if we think about it that way and use it that way, it'll just enhance our life and accelerate progress. Right, right. Just like our phones in our pocket or Google mm-hmm. or search engines or social media can all be used as tools to augment things that we're already doing and things that we're already learning about and trying to spread. Mm-hmm. Yep, Interesting. I agree. I agree. So back to this concept of range, as you were kind of growing up and going through school and medical school, did you always know that you wanted to get into medicine? For me, it came later. My, both my parents were doctors. My father was a otolaryngologist, so um, I was exposed to the surgical side of medicine through him, and then my mother was a nephrologist. She started a dialysis center in our small town in Westerly, Rhode Island. So I was surrounded by that my whole life. And so, you know, as a kid, you know, you're trying to find your own way and get different experiences. And, you know, I certainly had friends and in other fields, parents were in other fields. And so when I went to college, 
you know, I was thinking about medicine, but I wasn't pre-med, and but I wasn't interested in science. And so for me, chemistry was fascinating. I liked the fundamental building blocks of life and understanding how they came together to form molecules and molecules into the building blocks of cells and then on into living organisms. So chemistry became the focus of my college, uh, you know, major and, and what I was doing. And then after that, you know, I, I was interested in medicine, so I wanted to design new drugs and new treatments for, for patients. And so I went and worked at a pharmaceutical company uh, not far from where I grew up in Groton, Connecticut. And then that really became the beginning of thinking about a career in healthcare, and, but, but healthcare with a scientific bent to it. And, um, but it wasn't medicine until later, you know, after a few more years of sort of, you know, doing various activities, I had a chance to do some advanced sailing that I was interested in, competitive sailing, and then, you know, went on and um, met my wife, Lee, who, you know, was working in investment banking and followed her out to San Francisco, mm-hmm. did some additional research and work out there, applied to medical school, and that's when things kind of came together to go into, into medicine. So you're both sailors. Where did that interest come from? I mean, I know I've talked to Luke a lot about his his range. He said he played JV lacrosse and he did all these different things growing up and finally focused on sailing. sailing. But for you, what was like the influence and who kind of led you into, into sailing where you met your wife? Yeah. So growing up in Rhode Island, you know, we were on the water all the time. You know, we lived near the water. It was sort of a summer community, but we lived there year round. So in the winter, we, we didn't have much to do. It was sort of a quiet, sleepy place to be. There weren't a lot of kids around. You know, maybe I remember having two or three kids my age in the town during the winter time. Mm-hmm. In the summer, it was very different. So we were always looking for things to do, and the water was the natural place to go. And so we were always just messing around on the water. On the weekends, I would hang out at the boatyard, you know, fixing boats and working with people on you know, old boats. And so it was just what we did, you know, just hanging around the water. And I don't remember learning to sail. I credit my father and his brothers who grew up sailing in the Long Island area. And so naturally we were always just sort of on boats, messing around on boats. And um, with two, I had two brothers, I was the middle of two. And so the three boys were always just competing with each other, trying to figure out a way to get on the water and race, whether it was building small model boats or you know, running down to the, the, you know, the, the shore in the winter and putting our boat in. I remember we used to drag it down there on this small little dolly and go sailing when there was ice on the water. <laughs> and so we would just, we were always out there just, just getting into it. And, um, you know, that wasn't the natural thing for us. But again, I, I didn't do competitive sailing until maybe about 14, 15 years old. Some kids start when they're six, seven years old. Hmm. And so it was when I was 15, we started to get into it a little bit more. We had traveled, started to travel and throw the boat on top of the car and drive places to compete. And one of those places was Miami, Florida. We drove down all the way from Rhode Island, Wow, 24 hour trip. And, um, there was a pretty, pretty well-known event in the sun, in the winter called the orange bowl as part of the orange bowl series of, of competitions that happens down there. One of them's a competitive sailboat race. And so we went down there to compete in that. And that's where I first saw my wife Lee when she was 15 years old because she had driven down there to do the same thing and so we were just part of a large group of people that were down there competing and and trying to you know get better at sailing and and that was the beginning we didn't start dating then but but that was when you know sort of our worlds kind of collided and started you know seeing 
and learning from the same people. Interesting. Um, that sounds awesome. Uh, and, and is your wife in medicine too? Is she a doctor or did she follow a different route? No, she, she was a history, art history major at Dartmouth College and then went into investment banking. She's always oh, right. sort of been a that. mathematically inclined person. So she went into, into that and then stayed in that for a few years. And then we, when we moved to Baltimore, she continued working and supporting our family. You know, our kids, the twins, Luke and Reese, were, were born when I was still in medical school. So we were, I was a fourth year medical student and Lee was supporting us working at T. Rowe Price here in Baltimore. Uh, and then, you know, that continued for a long time until I graduated from residency, which is about 11 years after starting the, the process of becoming a doctor. And then eventually she sort of worked toward, you know, the, the focusing on the family for kids at that point. Mm-hmm. And, uh, there's a lot of work. Right. And now we're here, you know, senior years for both of them. And, you know, it's a big transition. Yeah. Uh, what was it like for you, I guess, going to Hopkins, very intense medical school? And how did you, I guess, find your uh, niche in, in neurosurgery when you were there? Was that something that you were interested in at the beginning when you first went in? Or is that something that kind of developed during your time there? Yeah, it was definitely not something I thought I was going to do when I started. I, I didn't even know if I was going to be a surgeon, honestly. When I, when I went into medical school, I was coming at it more from this sort of background in drug discovery and therapeutic advancement and thinking about, you know, medicine from that perspective still, given the, where I'd come to it from. So, but it was the experience of taking care of patients and in some ways, some of the intense experiences, especially life altering, you know, diseases that I hadn't experienced or, or, or really seen people go through before that I started to realize I had liked taking care of patients that had really challenging disorders. Mm-hmm. whether those were life-threatening strokes or really bad brain tumors or severe traumatic injuries. For some reason, I just liked helping people through those really challenging times. And in that way, I gravitated toward neurological injury. And neuroscience was fascinating to me, again, at the molecular level, at the level of new drugs and possibilities. And so between that concept and and the idea of taking care of patients with those types of problems. And then again, getting back to you know, sort of the types of things that I personally just found joy in doing day to day. And for me, it was more about the, the physical nature and the, the artistic component of surgery that really drew me in. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 when I started seeing the anatomy and seeing how you could manipulate and alter the anatomy to heal people and to fix problems, that was what just was clearly what I what I knew I wanted to do. Interesting how you keep using the word artistic to describe what you do, and, and knowing Luke and his amazing art that he does here at Gilman, I, I think that's that's pretty cool. How does art artistic? How does that like adjective show up in what you do? Yeah, for for me, it's sort of the yin and yang of life. You know, for me, it's the I love the data, the science, the the power of of bring using that to inform decision making and, and that's you know or to to challenge a hypothesis in something that you think is true mm-hmm. or you're trying to understand the truth of it that's that's fascinating to me and I'm, I'm so I'm a scientist at that level but then there's something else about humanity and the experience of life that's not like that that's that's truly creative it comes from a different place 
And I think that's a powerful, powerful thing. It's a differentiating human factor. And so I love being in a place each day, if I can, where I'm really going after some scientific truth process, hypothesis testing in some form, whether that's a differential diagnosis approach or some question in the laboratory that we're trying to answer, and balancing that in some form also with a creative, artful endeavor, whether that's whether that's creating something on a canvas. I too was a, a an artist and painted, not at the level of Luke, I don't think, but but I'd love that process too. And for me, surgery and medicine are the are bring those together every day. Yeah, interesting. Um, the other book, and I know. <laughs> I, I asked you to bring a book again, but this book I've been reading a lot. And William Carlos Williams is a very famous American poet. I'm sure you've heard his name before. Mm-hmm. Um, he was also a doctor. And I've been reading this part, and I've, I've only read, you know, The Red Wheelbarrow and some of his most famous poems before. But in the back of this book is his autobiography or a piece of his autobiography where he's talking about the combination of being in medicine but also being a writer and how he balances those two things. And there's one part that I tried to highlight and I'll just summarize it, but people ask him, how can you carry on such an active business like being a doctor and at the same time find hard to write? And he really says it's, it's no issue at all. The, the two artistic pursuit and medicine go hand in hand. Like his creative process stems from what he does on a day-to-day basis at his job. And what you're saying really, uh, you know, makes me think of that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think that's that's a real. I think it's a gift to have the opportunity to to have both of those each day in your life. You know, the the science aspect and then the creative artistic aspect. Um, for me, that's that that balance is what keeps things really new and fresh and fun. So one thing that I've been thinking about is um, like the routine that you have on a day-to-day basis just to keep yourself sharp and, uh, you know, for such an intense job. So in terms of how you, I guess, go about your day to make sure that your mind is fresh and you're, you know, prepared for such seemingly to me just on the outside, a stressful and intense day-to-day job. What do you, what practices do you have? Like, do you go for a morning walk? Do you coffee up before you go to work? Like, what do you do to, to, you know, prepare for your schedule? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I, I love that, the concept of that. And, and I'm always thinking about different ways to, to stay fresh or to find that sort of that state of, of, you know, comfort and relaxation, but also focus, you know, in sports, you know, people call it a state of flow or in the zone, these types of things. But if you can live your life kind of in that feeling of almost, it's a balance of intuition and, and you're, you know, continually able to just sort of move to the next thing without having to, to overthink it, you know. So, and in surgery, that's really important because if you're sitting there trying to double, triple think everything, next, 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 you know, you might be missing something and it might, it will take a long time and it's, it's got to become a very intuitive process. So it does really require, you know, um, some, some, you know, careful planning and, and I think rejuvenation. So um, number one, I think sleep is a very important thing. We know in neuroscience now that if you don't sleep well 
and, and really have restorative sleep, that your brain is actually not healing and clearing out critical waste products, byproducts of, of, of life and metabolism. And so that's important. So if you're not sleeping well, you're not performing well, number one. So, mm-hmm. and sleep also is, is a, needs to be a very regular thing. I tell my patients who have had a neurological injury or had a big brain tumor surgery in many cases that your recovery is gonna be defined by your sleep. Uh, sleep and then, and then a regular activity and you have to create an, a rhythm to that or your body and your brain won't heal. So I think more and more evidence for that is, is coming. And I think so that, that's a, something I focus on. Is, is, and I don't sleep a lot, but I try to really make sure I get a good night's sleep. And if I haven't gotten a good night's sleep, then I'm, I'm weary that I'm, the performance may not be there mm-hmm. the next day. So a, a very rigid schedule in terms of I'm going to bed at 9.30 and waking up at 5. Pretty regularly, yeah. I mean, I don't, I, I don't sleep that much, but I do sleep pretty regularly, and I try to avoid you know, you know, having disruptions in that. Now, being on call, for example, and getting up in the middle of the night, you have to just be aware that that's going to disrupt your function, and you have, to, you have to gather it back. When I was a, a resident in neurosurgery, we had a person come give us a lecture on on how to perform and, and optimize your sleep cycle. And I thought it was really fascinating. One of the things that, the, that was sort of revealed in this was that each person has a certain amount of sleep that they need, and you can't really alter that. Some people think, oh, I can train my body to just need four hours of sleep or something like that. That's not really true. There's, so, there's, a, there's a, a certain level of sleep that your body or my body really needs, and mm. you have to just honor that. That's number one. Number two is if you get behind in your sleep, you develop a uh, an accruing sleep deficit that you have to pay back. And if you don't pay it back, your, your brain and your body will continue to suffer. So that's so, sleep deprivation. It's a real... That's a real thing. So catching yeah. up on sleep is, yeah. is real. Yeah, I think absolutely. And then, you know, if you're going to try to recover, there's different ways to do that. There are certain epochs in a given day where there's periods of, of higher sleep momentum where your body can fall into a restorative sleep pattern more easily and other times in the day where you don't have that. And what's fascinating about that is, you know, you look at like siesta, for example, you know, when people take, you know, like why, why do they take a nap at that time of the day? And it's, it's now known that that's one of the periods generally where people have a higher degree of sleep momentum. And so if you take a nap during that time, you're going to get a restorative you know, affect hmm. more, even for a short period of time, 10, 20 minutes, or versus if you tried to take, a, you know, a nap at 10 in the morning, for example, you wouldn't be likely to get into the same restorative sleep cycle or pattern at that time of the day. So these are some of the tricks that, you know, people, we, we know about historically, but now are supported by, by data. And I think that that's one thing, whether it's talking to my patients about recovering or, making sure I'm aware of my own, you know, either sleep deficit or, or where I am in that. That's one thing I think it's very important in terms of optimizing performance the next day. You know, the, the other things, I mean, certainly exercise being active when you're not sleeping is very important. That's not that hard, you know, in me, with me, because I'm always running around doing different things. I think in, in, in the world I live in now, it's also getting to the ability of or capability of compartmentalizing like when you're when you're working on something or meeting with someone or in a surgery being fully present in that moment and what does it take to do that you can a lot of people talk about that you know and say oh yeah it's really important to be present minded and 
focused, do what you're doing and not, not be off somewhere else. But that's not always so easy, especially when you have a lot of responsibility or feel like you need to be getting something else done. And so the key for me is surrounding myself with people who are invested in the greater, you know, purpose and prop, you know, the, the various things that are going on so I can delegate or rely on others to be handling things and not feel like I, it's all on me. So that that's about how do you build a team? How do you build folks around you who are really invested in not just you personally, but the vision that you're, you're trying to, to you know, activate on and, and in the end, it's sort of simple, comes down to, you know, ref- having people around you who refuse to let you fail, who, who want to have your best interest in mind. And that, that's a very empowering sort of uh, concept to me. And, but how do you get that? It's not so easy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a combination of the right pieces. Mm-hmm. Something for me that has helped me, and I, I really started doing this during COVID, is I have an app, uh, Sam Harris has an app called Waking Up. And uh, I've just kind of incrementally done his meditation practices every day. And I feel like, I don't know if this is true or not, but I feel like my brain has almost been rewired in those couple of years during COVID through doing these meditation practices so that I can almost choose when to almost lock in on uh, on the present moment. You know, like you said, people say that all the time, be present, be in the moment, but feel like it really is a daily practice where you've got to consciously decide you know I need to be here and now because it is so easy anxiety things you have to do other things you're thinking of just the way that your your brain moves your mind moves it takes you out of the here and now and I think the practice really has helped me yeah no I think that's next level I think you have sleep which gets you to a certain level of basic neurophysiological balance and, and sort of clearance of of byproducts of of normal life then then there's this sort of wiring idea of you know humans have a very complex layered brain that's you know in some ways evolved out over millions of years and we have this neocortex you know the the the, the new cortex and, and that is critical, and it's what, you know, if you think about what defines the human brain compared to other mammals, not all mammals, but there's, it's just this highly convoluted social gyral pattern of the neocortex. And so that, that part of the brain is, is not only new, but it also has, you know, the connectivity between it and the other basal, emotional, you know, physiologic, uh, autonomic, the parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system, which control everything that's happening in your body that you're not thinking about, both the relaxation state components and the activation state components. So how does that all get wired together in a way that's fluid and not jumbled and not, you know, continuously misfiring? You know, I don't think that just happens on its own. And when you think about getting to a point where the the brain is able to sort of fluidly and cohesively function without this kind of telling you to do this or that. I, I think that's where meditation is coming in and sort of smoothening out the the back and forth between these different areas of our brains that we don't always have full control over. And you mentioned that all of a sudden you feel like you now have the ability to choose to be focused as opposed to hoping it happens, you know, in that moment. 
And I agree that that's the difference. That's why I think it is the next level. But it's been happening for thousands of years. People figured that figured out that 20 minutes or so twice a day of some meditative, you know, uh, you know, action or, or state is very powerful for the human brain. Mm-hmm. And so like you, I also was very interested in that sometime around COVID, a little before COVID, things were um, for me like just super busy you know and i felt like i wasn't able to reach that state of focus that i thought was not only more fun and enjoyable to be in but also safer when i was thinking about doing something complicated in the operating room or something like that and so i've started to feel like i wasn't wasn't there i was sort of out of my my what i'd had before and i didn't know why and so but it just seemed like I was there was just too much chatter going yep. on in, yep. in or up and around the brain, you know. And so, so I I started reading about you know different meditative practices, and I'd thought about them before, but never really sort of developed a practice. And one of the you know areas that I read about was transcendental meditation, which has been around for you know, a long time. And and so I actually took the transcendental meditation class, read a number of books about it, and then started you know, the process of doing 20 minutes twice a day, you know, uh, and I completely agree with you that it rewired my brain hmm. to a point where all of a sudden now, you know, there could be chaos going on around me and you have the ability to say no almost to that. And it's not like you can eliminate it, but you can kind of drive through it. Yeah, it feels like you're less reactionary. You know, mm-hmm. something happens that bugs you or you get in a situation where you'd usually have a quick response. Mm-hmm. I think it's true. People say that you can almost choose in that moment how you're going to react. Now, not all the time, but I think on, in most cases, it just gives you a half a millisecond to kind of pause and figure out uh, which way you want to go with the situation. It gives you some more complimentative time um, mm-hmm. kind of under the surface. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I think it's a, a, a very important part of managing, you know, the, the human brain and, and human physiology is to have some aspect of a, a meditative practice. But I think, it, you know, it's not, it, it's a lot of people think of meditation almost like a spiritual or religious thing. And it can be, I'm not saying it's not, but I also think it's a physiological thing mm-hmm. that there's some aspect of the human brain and, and neurophysiology that does require that to be able to perform at the highest level in a complex environment a chaotic world yeah i really wish i had known about it or used it as a practice when i was playing sports growing up and in college because i felt like you know you'd have a bad day of practice and it was because your mind was elsewhere. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, like 20 minutes before a practice or a tennis match can really help you stay engaged, you know. Um, yeah, I want, I'm fascinated by that, what you, what you just said, because you said 20 minutes before, and, you know, is that just your thought about when the optimal time would be to do this before having to perform at a high level? Or, or have you challenged that if you thought, you know, is there a time you know, before you want to do something at the highest level that you think it would be ideal to get into that state and then maybe be maintaining that state or have the ability to flip into that state? Yeah, I think 20 minutes before uh, 
semi-rigorous tasks. So for a while I was doing meditation before I did the podcast because, you know, it allowed me to stay with my guest or the person I was talking to without thinking about different things. And that's important for this because it's so easy to, you know, if you were talking to think about something else and then now I have to respond and Mm -hmm. I was elsewhere. So that really helped me for the podcast at least. But for sports, you know, I was always, I think my practice before, you know, coming to a game or a practice was having a coffee or, you know, Mm -hmm. listening to hype music or, or very, uh, you know, loud music in the locker room. And that didn't really help my brain kind of settle in and, and be focused. Whereas Sam Harris's app, I think is, that's just what I've used. And I like the guided meditation where he's actually bringing you back because your mind goes elsewhere. I think, I think it really, um, it really helps you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. For me, I find that it's the day before because I find that if you've if you've had the chance to meditate or to get into that whatever you want to call that state of sort of um, of relaxation and also just sort of you know giving your mind a chance to to work it out you know and, and calm down in a sense um, that changes the sleep for me the next that night hmm and then that together with a very powerful restorative sleep period is the difference maker the next day. That's what I've, that's, and that, not, not to say that you don't do the same, maybe meditate or to take the, take the time the next day too. But I find that combination to be very powerful. Definitely has an impact on your sleep. I, I feel mm-hmm. like I did notice that when I was doing it a lot. It yeah. helped me sleep better. Another thing that I've thought about recently is I've been watching Andrew Huberman's podcast. I don't know if you've you've watched any of him, but he's yeah. he's a Stanford uh, he's an MD, but he's a professor at Stanford, and he's been doing these very long podcasts where he just sits kind of like me in front of a camera and talks about a certain topic for an hour plus. And he did one on alcohol and talked about how alcohol impacts the brain and how alcohol impacts sleep. And I think mm-hmm. um, there are things that he was saying that I never even thought about, like having one glass of wine or one beer, you know, you think that it's not gonna do anything because you're not getting drunk, but it has such uh, massive impacts on the way you sleep and the way that in, the neurons fire in your brain that it can really impact you, you know, not only the next day, but for the rest of the week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I think we'll come to understand now that everyone has wearable devices and some sort of sleep monitor effect often built into that, that you know, that a lot of the things we do, even timing of dinner, for example, like having dinner very late and then going to sleep shortly thereafter, that can have a huge impact on your sleep as another example of that. So, and I think for, for each person, it may be a little different, you know, some people, you know, a glass of wine or a beer or whatever, you know, may have a huge impact on their, their sleep or their ability to perform, you know, the next day and others may be less so, but I think learning that about ourselves is a very important part of, uh, enjoying life and being able to perform at a high level and whatever you're going to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think those, uh, like the whoop, I don't know if the whoop, uh, Oh, the wrist yeah. pen that yeah. kind of monitors all of these things about yourself. That, those are interesting to me because on one hand, I'd like to know that data about myself. I'd like to know when my P 
peaks and valleys are in the day and how my sleep is and how many calories I'm burning. You know, this Garmin does it a little bit, but I think the Whoop to a far greater extent. But on the other hand, I feel like it would, I would get very, uh, you know, keen, keen, zoned in on that and everything I did would have to match my optimal, optimal performance levels that I'm reading on my device. Yeah, I totally agree. It's sort of like the AI concept. You know, at some point, you got to let it go and live and just, you know, interact with the world, you know, creatively go through life. Um, because if you are over-focused on the data or how the data is somehow telling you something about your performance, are you still able to perform? You know, at some point, it, it's interacting with it. It's it's sort of like, uh, you know... You have there's a balance there. You know, I think you have to just be careful of overdoing it. But but there is something to it. You know, especially if you're, you know, not doing well. You know, you wonder why is it? It's because I'm not sleeping well. It's because I'm not eating well. It's because I'm, you know, maybe I shouldn't be having a glass of wine before, you know, going to bed or whatever it is. You know, so I think getting that information can be important to just resolving, you know, a problem. But at some point, you want to get to a point where you don't necessarily need all that input. And you can just live life freely and and be fully present. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you: What is the most difficult part of your your job, and then what's the most fulfilling? Like, what's the best part to you? Yeah, at this point, I would say the most difficult thing I do is actually manage people. You know, and and you think you know someone, uh, or you, you think you've developed trust with someone, and that can be challenged very quickly. You know, I think. At the, you know, at the level of managing a neurosurgical team, neurosurgical department, scientists, neurosurgeons, educators, students, support staff, you know, it's a complex ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And I think the most important thing about in doing complex work is you realize you do need a diverse team with different backgrounds to do that job well, to, to solve the problems, to manage the day. So you don't want everyone to be the same. You really don't, to be high performing. You want different, different people, but then they may not always get each other or naturally trust each other. And so the cultivating trust is very important in managing diverse teams and really any team. And if the moment you lose trust in your team, team cannot constructively manage conflict conflict becomes a destructive entity. Mm-hmm. And so I'm constantly trying to find ways to create resiliency in our teams, which builds from trust. And people think, oh yeah, I just trust you mm-hmm. naturally. That's a false concept. Yeah, You know, you really have to be careful with trust and cultivate trust. And if you think you have it and you're just gonna stay there, it will be gone. Mm-hmm. Because the world is complicated, and that there's always things that will come in and potentially, you know, separate things or create, you know, divisions between people, especially if they don't naturally understand or come from the same background. When you think about building diverse teams, that's fu- fundamental to the team is that they don't have that necessarily to, mm-hmm. to rely or fall back on. You think about kids who go to Gilman; they have gone through this educational phase together, they've gone through those formative experiences together, they'll come back here on Thanksgiving to hang out and play football together. They have a baseline level of trust that will, because of all that shared background and experience, and that's very powerful. Mm -hmm. 
but in other experiences in life or teams in life, you, you don't have that to fall back on. So a lot of what I do now is, is be aware of that and look to cultivate that because if you have a resilient team that's diverse from different backgrounds, you can solve complex problems, you can perform at the highest level together, and that becomes really fun to see every day. So in what ways do you build trust? Because what you're saying uh, reminds me a lot of coaching a team. And, you know, you've got all of these different players with different personalities and some are getting playing time and others aren't. And the parents are watching and they're angry and you're not winning games. And in a lot of ways, it seems like pretty similar. Um, So you have to, as a coach, and I haven't mastered this whatsoever, but I, I think good coaches have build trust within players and the players trust the coach and they trust each other on the field or on the court. How do you build trust as, you know, in your role? Yeah, I think depending on the activity you're trying to build a team around or create momentum toward a vision, you know, I I think you have to define first where we're going together. We have to be on, you have to want to go there together. And, And then you have to have certain principles that you're going to hold people accountable to, or even in some cases, core values that really, you know, are are critical to the endeavor that you're you're going down. Whether that's becoming a great team for a sport or or something else. So you got to get people on the same page, despite being from all these different places mm-hmm. and also different roles that are going to be played. Because if you start out needing to have eight different people playing different roles. They're from different backgrounds. They each have, you know, different jobs on the team. And nobody really knows where you're going. And there's not a shared principle or core values to, you know, that endeavor that you've defined as the leader. It's going to be a mess. Mm -hmm. So it starts with you have to get people on the same page at some level and then let people be different. You you don't, I'm not trying to make everybody the same. And, And in that process, there has to be, a high degree of transparency as to who's doing what and why. Right. If you don't define that for everyone and they're like, well, why does that guy get to do that? Why does he get all that playing time? You have to be clear and transparent about why, how, and, and what the expectations are. Mm-hmm. And if you don't do that, you're going to have dis- you're going to have discord within the group you lo- and trust is gone. And then there's not resiliency. When you think about being great at something, whether it's, you know, going through a whole season and, you know, winning the championship or performing every day at a high level in the operating room, you have to be in a state of mind and have a state of your team that can get knocked down and get back up. Mm -hmm. If you don't have that, you're going to get knocked down and it'll be over. Mm -hmm. So how do you create that? That's the key. And so it's not just about you and your state of relaxation and meditation and being ready to handle the chaos <clears throat> of the moment is also the people around you and how you've cultivated that. Maybe it's you as a leader. Maybe it's you as just part of the team. Depending on the endeavor, it might not need a leader. Mm-hmm. In some endeavors, you absolutely have to have a leader. Not always, though. But <clears throat> regardless, that entity, that group of people, needs to be able to be resilient enough to meet the challenge, maybe even get hit down and knocked down by the challenge, lose, come back. Right. If you can do that, if you can develop that around yourself, within yourself, then 
you're going to perform at a high level and you're going to achieve great things. I think that's very true. I think that's true really for anything. You know, my uh, sister is getting married. My younger sister is getting married later this month. Uh, she's in the army. She went to West Point and she met this guy, Pete Davis, who's going to be an army ranger and he's an absolute stud. I like him a lot. And, uh, given a toast at their wedding coming up here in a couple weeks. But one thing I'm going to talk about, I think is the fact that they ran a marathon together a week ago, you know, kind of in preparation for getting married or just something to do together. I mean, they're crazy, but the fact that they did that, you know, like the, the, the difficulty of that task and running side by side with somebody and picking them up when, you know, they're not feeling well or they want to stop or they can't make it any longer, the positivity involved. I think it's not only important in a marriage, but in any organization, you know, that resiliency, what you're talking about, positivity and being able to rebound from whatever happens, right? Things are going to pop up at any time. Yep. Absolutely. No, I agree. I think the, the that becomes the most fun thing is if you can you can be in a relationship or be on a team that even if you lose, you know you're going to take that loss, grow and build from it, become stronger from it, not have it be d- destructive to the team or destructive to the relationship. And that's where do you get that? You know, you get that from developing and cultivating trust. Because if you don't have that in one another, whether it's just two people or a whole team of people, conflict becomes destructive. The conflict may be a loss. The conflict may be just you and me not getting along in that moment for whatever reason, because I was supposed to get the pass, not you, mm-hmm. whatever it is, you know? And so each of those moments can either be constructively developing or destructively developing. What That's like, it's a binary algorithmic process in the brain. Mm-hmm. And you either have the, the the substrate for it to become constructive or destructive and that's what i'm fascinated by like how do you have it move you know the majority of the time maybe not always but the majority of the time it's moving in a constructive manner toward building and higher degree of resiliency mm-hmm. as opposed to well, now we don't trust each other as much or now i'm more worried that you're out for yourself not out for the better you know for the team that's that's what I'm looking out for constantly. Now, do you think the um, benefit to having a d- diverse group of people is kind of the creative solutions to these difficult problems that people are bringing, you know, the, the wide variety of background experiences to this profession that they can end utilize to solve difficult issues that have never been seen before? I do. I think it's an aspect of creativity. It's an aspect of synergy as well, which is, you know, if you if you bring multiple perspectives to a complex problem and you, you don't always know which one's going to be the right answer, but if you challenge each one and then, you know, be open to any of them being the solution, even if it's from the, the person who you thought had the least experience or maybe didn't really understand the problem even, but it just happened that they're their solution was the winner. Like you've got to be open to that. Mm-hmm. So that that's the difference. You know, if you just let the person who's been around the longest or thinks they're the smartest offer all of the answers or solutions to the problem, you're missing out. Mm-hmm. So Dr. Woodworth, let's get to uh, what is your book recommendation for today? What is something that you've read before that has made an impact on you? Yeah, there's a there's a lot of a lot of options there for me. I think uh, 
you know, one of the books that I've, I've been handing out to people recently is actually a book related to an operating system that we use now in our department. And this, this operating system is, was designed in a way for small businesses to succeed and develop momentum and organize people. The book is, um, is, is called Traction. And Traction describes an operating system that is called the Enterprise or Entrepreneurial Operating System. And it's really fascinating because it's, it's all about human psychology and how to get people, again, complex groups of people working together, whether it's a small business or, or you know, any other kind of organization. And I, I, I've, we've implemented this system in the department that, uh, that I work in, and it's really been a huge game changer. You know, we had a person that is an expert in, in actually doing this implementation process and he has been, you know, a huge part of our, become a huge part of our team. And when I think about, again, managing all the things in a day-to-day, you know, life and neurosurgery and, and in a hospital, taking care of patients, you, you know, you really have to have a system in place to manage the data, manage the issues, manage the people. And this, this book and um, and the process that it puts in place in an organization, I have found completely freeing hmm. and and powerful. And so, I even yesterday was talking with the CEO of our hospital, and we were we we got to this conversation. Not unlike we are having now about how are we going to deal with all this conflict, and you know how do we get people on the same page here? And, and you know, I was like, well, when was the last time we weren't on Zoom in a meeting? Mm-hmm. You know, when was the last time we were all hanging out and getting to know each other and seeing each other's emotion and faces and developing some aspect of human connection? He's like, yeah, you're right. Every meeting is on Zoom with 50 people. Half of them are off their screen. You don't know where they are. The other half that are on their screen, you don't even know what that background, that blurry background is. Mm-hmm. There's no personal. Yep. You know, so we've gotten into this post-COVID world de- in many ways dehumanized, de- depersonalized. And that doesn't allow this cultivation of trust, and and I think that's break, that breaks down resiliency, and all those things. So I think that we've got to get back to that, and and realize that so much of what we do relies is heavily reliant on our interpersonal connections and trust in each other, and that's what we, you know we, we need to do. And th- you know this this concept of of traction is really about how do you bring people together. How do you make them account do accountable to each other? The the core principles of the of the system is are really accountability, clear accountability, and transparency. Mm. And if you have that, people can really work together because they understand who's accountable to who, why, and then it's clear and there's nothing being hidden, data, you know, anything else. So um, for me, that's been a really powerful business and operating tool for managing people and managing a complex organization. So I'm sure the answers to this question can you know, vary, and it's sort of a broad question, but I'm, I'm wondering, if, is there a specific example for like a common conflict that arises in, in your world between people? Oh, well, there's many. <laughs> you know, a common one would be, I think, you know, a patient should be cared for this way. And you think a patient should be cared for this way. Yeah. The conflict is at the, at the level of that difference might lead to a life and death outcome. Yeah. So that's pretty powerful conflict. Yeah. So that happens all the time. <clears throat> Another would be, you know, related to 
the struggle around <clears throat> the finances of, of medicine and how someone's going to pay for this or where the resources are going to be allocated. And again, the, how those resources may be allocated could change things at a life and death level. Mm-hmm. So the conflicts can get pretty heated right? pretty quickly. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. Well, thank you for the book recommendation, Traction. Um, is it specified to the medical world as or is it just broadly no. any group organization? No, no, it's it's it again. It's it it describes the system called EOS or the Entrepreneurial or Enterprise Operating System, and the the general principle in the beginning of of the book is that look, if you're running a complex organization or doing doing complex work, and you have a lot of people from different backgrounds, and you're trying to develop, uh, you know, uh, traction in your in your enterprise that you need an operating system. That's not just how you personally think as a leader or as a player on this team. It's gotta be almost independent of you. You can believe in it and see it as valuable, but you can refer back to it as, hey, this is our operating system. Sort of like if you have a Macintosh computer and you wanna have different apps on that computer, there's gotta be some fundamental operating system that's driving the whole thing. Mm-hmm. If each app is trying to run its own thing and it's gonna just be pure chaos. Right. And so it's the same thing. You have to have a foundational operating system that you can kind of build apps off of or build modules off of mm-hmm. to be able to do complex things, whether it's across an interface of a personal computer or a phone or you know a human organization that's trying to do work like that. Interesting, it makes a lot of sense. Um, one other thing that I wanted to ask you about is the kind of the new technologies uh, of like focused ultrasound and some other things that you're working on that um, are pretty promising for the future of neurosurgery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so focused ultrasound is fascinating as a as an energy form because you know it's sound waves, you know, and and sound waves can be you know in various frequencies. And, and uh, you know, certain frequencies of sound can actually penetrate through biological media, like tissues, skin, and, and, and even to the point where you can get it to move through intact skull, scalp, and into the brain. And so for many years, uh, scientists and, and doctors have been trying to find new ways to use ultrasound for various purposes, and you probably had it used on you, either for diagnostic purposes or some people it's used for physical therapy. Uh, but but ultrasound can also um, you know be applied in such a way that it can break up structures. An example of that in medicine today is called lithotripsy, where ultrasound is used to break up kidney stones uh, through through the back. And so um, so it's not a new energy form used in medicine, but the idea of being able to focus it through the intact human skull and actually achieve a given effect in a targeted way within the brain for a purpose. The purpose could be um, improving or rewiring, in a sense, a dysfunctional neural circuit in a condition called essential tremor or Parkinson's disease all the way through to the idea of using the sound waves to gently perturb blood vessels and cause them to have temporary permeability. So in our brains, in our central nervous system, the blood vessels are set up differently than they are elsewhere in the body. They're, they're set up to be protective of the neural structures because of the importance of those structures for 
our overall function. And so that barrier, that which is really a unique neurovascular unit, um, is 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 called the we call the blood-brain barrier. And uh, it's really not just in the brain, though; it's also in the spinal cord. But but that uh, that barrier limits our ability to. Um, you know, deliver therapeutics to the brain for conditions all the way from Alzheimer's disease to, you know, certain types of brain tumors, even other psychological conditions. Very few uh, drugs get from the bloodstream into the brain to treat brain disorders. So in the work I do taking care of patients with brain tumors, you know, one of the most frustrating things is you know, being able to take out what looks like the entire abnormal tumor and do that in a way that preserves, maximally preserves the patient's function, but yet know that despite all that work and apparent success, there's still invading tumor cells far out into the brain that are going to lead to recurrence in the not too distant future. And so those tumor cells aren't removed because they're in functional brain. And if I were to remove those regions of the brain, the patient wouldn't be doing as well. So that fundamental problem has motivated me supremely for the last 10 plus years. I want to take out that tumor. I want to do it successfully. I want to do it in a way that's maximally safe and functional preserving for the patient. But then I want to treat those cells that are still there, that are woven into the fabric of the brain, the functioning brain, in a way that still preserves that function, maintains that function, but can selectively take out those cells to either turn such a disease into a chronic problem, or maybe if we're lucky, get to a point of curing patients with that type of a tumor. Hmm. This is the deadly tumor that you've probably heard about from that Bo Biden had, that Tim Kennedy had called glioblastoma. Yeah. So for me, focused ultrasound is a tool that can help us temporarily access those cells and do it in a way that's gentle and controlled and targeted to the regions where we know those cells may be hiding behind the cloak of the blood-brain barrier. Hmm. And so if we can temporarily open that barrier and get therapeutics to go in and get those cells before they become recurrent tumor, to me, that's the holy grail. Hmm. Interesting. And so I've been focused, literally focused for years on developing this technology for that purpose. And we've gotten to the point where we can actually use the beams of energy and steer them around the region of interest where we know the tumor cells are likely to be and essentially 3D print the energy effects in the brain safely hmm. in the patient while they're still just, you know, just laying there in an MRI scanner or on a table. And then we can demonstrate that after doing that, there's temporary new vascular permeability uh, and then, again, get drugs and therapeutics into those regions um, in, a, in a controlled, uh, you know, uh, both temporal and spatially controlled manner. And so that's the game changer. If we can do that for tumors, treatments like glioblastoma, if we can do that for conditions like Alzheimer's disease, targeting to regions that are known to be contributing to that pathophysiology, and then you know, not only getting the drugs in, having them stay there and having them, you know, safely treat the, the, the problem. That's what we're going after with focused ultrasound. So it's, it's a game-changing energy form in medicine. You know, I think there's a certain, you know, disruptive technologies that we've seen in medicine over the years. 
Um, most recently, I would say that that was at the level of immunotherapy, you know, in cancer. You know, you may have heard of some of the different drugs and, you know, miraculous, near miraculous uh, effects of some of these drugs and the way that they can clear tumors from throughout the body. A very powerful new, you know, sort of approach in medicine. Focused ultrasound is going to be or is like that. It's going to open up doors to treatments that we really didn't think were possible before. It's likely to be combined with other treatments, whether drugs for cancer or drugs for Alzheimer's or whatever it may be. And and that's an exciting place to be, to be able to part, be part of that phase of a transition in medicine, not just neuro, neurosurgery, but really in medicine that's going to I think define you know a, a new field even in in medicine one day will be not unlike there's a field of radiation oncology for radiotherapy one day I believe there'll be a field for acoustic therapy or focused ultrasound therapy in the same way that's fascinating wow how long is the procedure how long does it take is it a, is it a longer procedure than other ones no I mean like any new technology things start slow you know and there are you know safety mechanisms that we need to keep in place for now that keep keep it to a certain you know uh, t- time duration but it, over the course of the last you know say five years the treatments have gone from say four hours to two hours and then some of them now can be done in even under an hour mm. so I, I think this technology is going to advance so that most of these treatments are going to happen with under an hour wow Sounds amazing, and uh, you're doing amazing work. So thank you very much, and and thank you for coming in this morning and and for your time. Appreciate it. It was a fun conversation, and um, hope to see you soon. Excellent. Thanks so much for having me. 